Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 1. We started a new series on Genesis last Sunday, and this Sunday we're looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Every inch of these chapters is a battleground theologically and, of course, with the secular world. Some people feel you have two accounts of creation, one in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but actually you have an overview in Genesis 1, and then Genesis 2 picks up and gives the details. If you only had Genesis 1, you would think that God created Adam and Eve at the same time. When you look at 2, you find that first he created Adam, and then he creates Eve from Adam. And so 2 is an elaboration on man and what God does with man. You have the creation of man in verse 26 of chapter 1, and God said, "'Let us make man in our image.'" After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Let us make man. Who is us? Well, certainly not God and the angels. God doesn't consult with the angels about creation, uh, although they were created at this point. Nor is man in the image of angels, he's in the image of God. Let us make man in our image. Apparently, us here is an intimation of the fact that God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he enters into consultation about this new important step in creation, the crown of creation, man. Let us make man in our image. You notice the pattern. What does that mean, that man is in the image of God? Well, there's a broad sense in which man is in the image of God and a narrow sense. In the broad sense, man is rational. He is different from the other creatures. He can think. He can worship. In the narrow sense, the image of God has to do with a moral likeness. When man sinned, he lost the narrow sense of the image of God. And prior to becoming a Christian... Fallen man is not in the image of God in the narrow sense, although he is in the broad sense. He's still rational. Uh, he's still capable of entering into relation to God. He's different from the creatures. He has a soul. But he lost the narrow sense. The narrow sense is identified for us by the New Testament, where it says that when we become Christians, we're renewed in the image of God. In Ephesians 4.24, it says that we are created as Christians, we are created in true righteousness and holiness after the image of him who created us. So the image of God in man was righteousness and true holiness, a moral likeness. And then in Colossians 3.10, it says that we are renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created us. So the image of God in man in the narrow sense was knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Prior to the fall, man thought right about God. He had a true knowledge of God. And uh, his heart was right. He loved the right things. His will was right. He chose the right things. And when Adam sinned, that moral likeness was lost. So that his man, a man's mind became darkened and his will became rebellious. And out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, 
All these things come from within and defile the man. Fallen man, in the narrow sense, no longer in the image of God. The image twisted and marred. But in the broad sense, still in the image of God. And that has tremendous implications. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Capital punishment. For in the image of God made he man. When you murder a man, you're not killing an animal. You're killing someone made in the image of God, and you should forfeit your life. Uh, that is, you see the implications of uh, this. Uh, tremendously important. Uh, to uh, give you a feel of how important. Here's uh, while I was reading. I was reading a book the other day, and the man said he pulled up. He pulled up to a light, and as he did, an old lady was crossing the street. On the left-hand side was uh, a Cadillac. On the right-hand side was a tractor-trailer carrying a lot of expensive cargo. And he thought. If my brakes gave way and I had to make a choice of which of those three objects to hit, which would I choose? And he said immediately, I wouldn't hit the woman. And he thought, well, why did I make that valued judgment? And he said, well, because uh, I grew up in a culture uh, that uh, has, has been based on a Judeo-Christian base, foundation, that man is created in the image of God. And that's why I would make that value judgment. She, old, poverty-stricken, decrepit, is of far more value than the brand-new Cadillac or the expensive tractor-trailer truck. But you see, that can all change in a hurry, can't it? There was uh, an issue of California Medicine, the official journal of the California Medical Association. It came out several years ago. And the article was entitled, A New Ethic for Medicine and Society. It started off like this. There is an old ethic based in the Judeo-Christian heritage, which has prevailed in the West and has been a keystone of Western medicine, namely reverence for each human being equally with no regard to the person's quality of life, that is, their age or their relative health, etc., this ethic, which is still dominant, must be replaced by a new ethic, says the article, because of emerging demographic and ecological and social realities, such as the dwindling resources, population expansion, etc. The new ethic, which is certain to prevail, would place relative rather than absolute values on human lives on the use of resources and on what actually constitutes quality of life living so that practices like abortion could be justified even if they involve the killing of innocent human lives. The criteria uh, for these relative values would depend on whatever concept about the quality of life prevails at any given time in society. Those with the responsibility of establishing such criteria are people, such as physicians, who, by the role they are playing in abortion, are already shaping the attitudes of people 
in the direction that they should be shaped, says the article. Makes a tremendous difference whether man is in the image of God and whether our culture is founded on that base or whether man is the naked ape, just a higher animal. Our culture is moving from one ethic to another ethic. We see that uh, man is made in the image of God. Remember, that image needs renewing, and it means that if you're not a Christian, you're not in the image of God in the narrow sense, although you are in the broad sense. If you are a Christian, you're being recreated in the image of God, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. You're not back totally in that image yet, but you're being renewed in that image by the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Notice the position that man is placed in, in uh, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the fowl of the air, and every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Man is placed over the earth, and he's commanded to subdue it. This is what's called the cultural mandate. Man is to take this world that God has given him, and he's to bring it into subjection to God, in a sense. Go into the world of politics and subdue it. Go into the world of medicine, make it serve God. Go into the world of science. Bring out the treasures of this world that God has built into it, and uh, use them to glorify him. Go into all the world and subdue it. The cultural mandate. Culture is the conquest, the management, the cultivation of the world as we carry out this cultural mandate. Uh, the process in chapter 2, verse 7, he says how he made man. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Notice uh, the craftsmanship God formed. He that formed the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? God forms the man, a special creation. Then he forms the woman out of the man, a little later. Uh, this would be, of course, in contrast to the idea of a gradual development of man from a uh, lower life form to a higher life form, from, from the amoeba to man, through the fish, through the monkey to man. In direct contrast, the dual nature of man here, God makes his body and he uh, breathes into him the breath of life. Man becomes a living soul. He makes him spiritually alive as well as physically alive. Of course, as we said, uh, this, this has gigantic implications and is a battleground also. If man is the product of naturalistic evolution, as many today in our society would believe and as would be taught in most of our colleges and so on, if man's the product of naturalistic evolution, that's evolution without any guiding hand, just chance is is the result of chance, then that means there's no real meaning to life, no real purpose in life, no life after death, no God 
who created man that man must answer to. Two total different views of life, life and worldviews, clashing. What shall we say about the concept of naturalistic evolution? Well, we need to be sure that we understand the concept and uh, some of the things it calls on us to believe. As we say, the meaning of the term is that the higher life forms developed from the lower life forms without any guiding hand. How did that happen? Well, Darwin, in his Origin of the Species, which I have here, proposed that it happened by natural selection, the survival of the fittest. Darwin wrote his book in 1861. At the centennial of that, 1961, a new edition was published by Every Man's Library, and they chose a man to write the introduction to that who is noted for his leadership in the field of biology. Professor W.R. Thompson, who is the director of the Commonwealth Institute of Biological Control in Ottawa. Dr. Thompson uh, talks here about Darwin's views and whether or not they're valid. He says, Darwin did not show in the origin that species had originated by natural selection. He merely showed on the basis of certain facts and assumptions how this might have happened. And as he had convinced himself, he was able to convince others also. But the facts and interpretations on which Darwin relied have now ceased to convince. The long-continued investigations on hereditary, heredity and variation have undermined the Darwinian position. We now know that the variations determined by environmental changes, the individual differences regarded by Darwin as the material on which natural selection acts, are not hereditary. It's true some variations are hereditary. These are the so-called mutations, which do not develop gradually but appear suddenly and remain as they appeared. The varieties of domesticated plants and animals are the result of mutations. But such forms must be eliminated in nature, which would otherwise present a spectacle entirely different from the reality. Mutations are not adaptive. If we say it's only by chance that they are useful, we're still speaking too leniently. In general, they are useless, detrimental, or lethal. In other words, you don't get movement upward by mutations. A freak or a mutation is not superior, it's inferior. So that doesn't produce movement upward. You realize that the concept of evolution is that all of this happened by chance. That means that the human eye is an accident. No engineer, no design. It happened by chance. Human ear, human reproductive system with its counterpart happened by accident. Now you explain that to me. How it had to happen by accident twice with the exact opposite. Uh, Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, tells about hearing a lecture 
speak of the marvel of chance that produced all this. And as he went out, he stopped and talked to him. He said, Sir, I don't exactly understand this matter of chance. Maybe you could tell me, what does, what does chance, what, what does it look like? He said, well, chance is, is, not, is not an entity. And Sproul said, well, uh, how much does it weigh? But it, it's, it's, it doesn't weigh anything. It's not a thing. He said, let me see. Now, chance is not a thing. That's right. It's not a thing. It's no thing. Yes, it's no thing. Well, what is the difference between no thing and nothing? Chance is, is not a force or a power. Chance can't do anything. I can drop my keys by chance, but chance didn't do that. I did that. Chance doesn't, can't produce anything. It's nothing. Now, uh, of course, you have uh, the problem of where did life come from to begin with? And, of course, the answer that the evolutionist gives, he says it happened by chance, spontaneously, in some primordial soup. Well, you know, they've been trying to create life in a laboratory now for a long time, and they haven't accomplished it, and they won't accomplish it. You talk to any knowledgeable scientist about that, and he'll acknowledge it'll never happen. But suppose it did happen. Suppose they managed to create life in a laboratory. Would that demonstrate that at some time in the past it happened spontaneously? Or would it demonstrate that it took an intelligent mind to do it the first time? That's all that would prove. You have many scientists who realize the utter ridiculous claim that the higher life forms came about by chance. And so they, they say there is a life force that does the designing that's resident in all living matter. The, the technical term is intelliki. This sort of good genius does the designing and is pushing each life form to perfection. Uh, this, this produced the drive upward from amoeba to fish to man, to monkey, to man. It's, it's resident in all living matter, driving it onward and upward. This life force, sort of a tame God, said C.S. Lewis. He's not personal. He doesn't control everything, but he pushes life upward. Sort of a tame God. Not apart from cre creation so on. Well, this life force, if that's true, why is it so erratically distributed? They've discovered a bat that is millions of years old that is exactly like modern bat. Now, listen carefully. If this innate perfecting force is in all living matter, why didn't the bat become Batman? <laughs> you, you think about that. You think about that. Why isn't, uh, why isn't evolution going on today? The scientist, uh, who's an evolutionist, would say it is going on today. It's just so gradual you can't see it. You can't measure it. No, it's not going on today. How do you know? 
Because if it were going on today, everything would be in a state of flux. You'd have some one-third uh, one man, two-third monkey. One-half man, one-half monkey. Two-thirds man, one-third monkey. That would be true. One, one part dog, you know, one-half dog, one-half man. Two-thirds man, one... All around, everything would be in a state of flux. Not that way. Dogs only remain dogs. you got some weird dogs, but dogs only remain dogs. Cats only remain cats. Got some weird men, but they're men, you know. And uh, so it's not going on. What stopped it? <clears throat> the only evidence available to examine as to whether it's ever taken place would be the fossil record. To quote from uh, Dr. Thompson in his introduction, he says, Evolution, if it has occurred, can in a rather loose sense be called a historical process, and therefore to show that it has occurred, historical evidence is required. The only evidence available is provided by the fossils. What do the fossils show? Here's what he says. If we found in the geological record a series of fossils showing gradual transition from simple to complex forms and could be sure that they correspond to a true time sequence, we should be inclined to feel that Darwinian evolution has occurred even though its mechanism remained unknown. This certainly is what Darwin would like to have reported in his book. But of course he wasn't able to do so. What the available data indicated was a remarkable absence, remarkable absence of the many intermediate forms required by the theory. The absence of the primitive types that should have existed in the strata regarded as the most ancient and the sudden appearance of the principal taxonomic groups, the sudden appearance of the bear family or the cat family or whatever. Against these difficulties, he could only suggest that the geological record is imperfect, but that if it had been perfect, it would have provided evidence for his views. He said, those fossils are there, we just haven't found them, or else they weren't made. Well, we're 120 years later, and they're not there. They never were there, they never will be there. Because that's not how it happened. God created uniquely. We see the place that he put uh, man when he created him in verse 8 of chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. This was a historical place. It identifies four rivers that came out of the river that came out of the garden. Two of those rivers we know today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. So this was somewhere in the valley of the Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, the probation, he puts man on probation in verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and uh, put him there to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not have eat, eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Puts him on probation. This, wasn't, this was a real tree, but not a magical tree. 
God could have put a box there and said, do not open this box. He could have drawn a line and said, do not cross this line. The issue was, would man obey God, trust God, love God, or would he act independently? Now that he has choice and reason, uh, would he act independently of God or submit his will to God and be faithful to God? That was the issue. If he disobeys, there would be consequence, a terrible warning. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The un- what that means is unfolded in the rest of the Bible. What would that death involve? Well, it would involve spiritual death. It would involve the destruction of the image of God in man in the narrow sense. It would involve the whole human race being plunged into darkness spiritually. Uh, it, would Im- it would involve ultimately hell. It would involve the whole universe, the whole world being under a curse so that disease and many other things that were not a part of the original creation would become a part of this fallen creation. It involves so much. Well, then uh, uh, God creates the woman. In verse 18, The Lord said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. God has created everything, and each one, each time he says, And it was good. Now he says, Not good. Not good for man to dwell alone. That doesn't mean there was a defect in man, but it means he designed man as a social being who needs companionship. And he lets man sense that need, and, and man looks at all the different creatures and names them, but not one of them is suitable to, be, to meet that need for companionship, to be a helper meet for him. And then God creates the woman to be a help meet. The word helper meet here is the idea of a counterpart. If you look it up, uh, the Hebrew word in a lexicon, it says... Uh, one who answers back to him. One who answers back. That's kind of the way my wife does. That's it. <clears throat> or another says, uh, one who, another lexicon says, one who fills his empty places. Cooks, obviously. Cooks for him. That's, uh, no, this would be uh, someone not just to share the labor, but to share his life, not to be his property, but to be his partner. God would create this. And so it says in verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. And brought her unto the man. And Adam said, wow. No, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then you get, uh, you get the creation ordinance of marriage in verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The first wedding, God does it, and God gives principles about marriage. And notice the principle of devotedness. The primary unit no longer is the original family and the relationship there with the parents, but now he leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Devotedness, commitment, Love, 
This becomes a primary unit now. And uh, the decisiveness of this, it says, and they shall be one flesh. In the sight of God, these two now are one. Remember, Jesus was asked by the religious leaders, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he went back to this passage and he quoted, he said, Have you never read how that he that made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, and then he quotes this verse, that the two become one. And he said, Therefore there are no more two. In the sight of God they are one, and what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Now he gives some biblical basis for divorce, but, but he goes back to this passage and speaks of the decisiveness of this and that they're joined in the sight of God. Well, you can see just uh, tremendous here how much is in this passage. We've had to go through it fast. But the implications, man is in the image of God. How important it is that we understand that and we stand on that and we resist every effort to move our culture away from that concept of man. Man is unique. He's valuable. He's created in God's image. That has all kind of implications for our society and ethics. That God created man and this world. It's his. Man is answerable. There is meaning. There is purpose. Uh, it didn't come about by chance. And uh, we're here to glorify and serve God. Marriage is a divine institution, not a human uh, convention, a divine institution. And God who gave the institution gave the rules that govern the institution. Uh, man is a fallen creature today. No longer in the image of God in the narrow sense. Needing to be renewed in the image of God. Our calling is to go out and to be part of a recreation as we go out and share the gospel so men can be renewed in the image of God. I can be instrumental in somebody being renewed in the image of God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to be renewed in the image of God. How does God do that? Well, you remember here when he creates the woman, he, he puts her to sleep and he puts Adam to sleep and then he takes one of Adam's ribs and out of that rib... He creates the woman. Well, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that uh, that's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And he puts it like this. He says, uh, we are members of his body, Christ's body, and of his flesh and of his bones. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. God, in a sense, put his son to sleep. He put his son through the agonies of death and the punishment for sin, hell in a sense, and took out of his side, his wounded side, a bride, the church. And we're bone of his bone. We receive our life from Christ's death. We're bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh when we commit our lives to him. When we commit our lives to Christ, much as the bride does to the husband, I will obey you and I trust you to join yourself to me and to cleanse me from the guilt of my sins through your death. Then I'm united to him, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, his bride, part of him. And I begin to be renewed within. He that's joined to the Lord is one spirit, his Holy Spirit within. 
recreating me in the image of God. Has that ever happened in your life? It can today. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, do you realize how crucial our world and life view is? Where do you stand on these great issues? How the world came to be, whose it is, why it's here, uh, the fact of man in the image of God. Are you a doctor? Does that affect your practice of medicine? Uh, How do we view these things? Are we committed to these things, refusing to be moved away from them, resisting the trends in our society that would move our society away? As we choose our officials, which ones will we choose? Those who stand where uh, traditionally the church has stood or those who are part of that new ethic? Are you here and not renewed in the image of God? That image twisted and marred? Do you want to be renewed in the image of God? Are you willing to have a master? and to trust a Savior? If you are right now, make this kind of commitment in your heart. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, I need renewing. I need my mind enlightened. I need my heart changed, my will broken. Lord, uh, renew me in your image. Come and live in me. Amen.